It's a great pleasure for me to introduce this uh, session where Martin Sandbu will um, introduce his book, Europe's Orphan, The Future of the Euro and the Politics of Debt. Before I introduce Martin, let me say that this is an LSE European Institute Perspectives on Europe lecture. So there's a whole series of lectures on this theme of perspectives on Europe. And uh, today uh, we will uh, have Martin's book that will be presented by him. The Twitter hashtag is LSE Euro, and our Twitter handle is at LSE EI. Let me briefly introduce Martin. Martin is a, uh, a person with a, a truly European background, born in Norway. Um, but uh, also Polish in origin, then went to France to study, later to Oxford where he got his PhD, and then went to the US for academic work, um, both uh, um, at uh, Harvard, um, Columbia University, and the areas of his expertise are quite vast, uh, not only monetary economics and macro, but also um, development economics, philosophy and economics. So really a, a broad area of expertise that um, is, is interesting to have when one touches upon even technical issues like uh, the, the euro and the future of the euro. Martin is today um, a senior economics writer at the Financial Times. He also has a, a, a blog which is called um, Free Lunch. I couldn't believe it initially. You know, I'm an economist and I've been told that free lunches do not exist. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And therefore I was um, quite surprised. And my first reaction was that this blog doesn't exist. But then I, I, I went to check and it is uh, an FT blog daily almost daily, daily. Five uh, that I recommend to you. Um, it's full of insights, um, sharp, uh, some humor, the right mix, you know. Um, and the book that uh, Martin is going to talk about also is, uh, in my view, quite an important book. Uh, it's a book that is a little bit iconoclastic, right? Uh, doing away with conventional wisdom. Um, <coughs> When I read it, I read it. Uh, when I read it, sometimes I had to um, contain myself, my emotions. Um, you, I, you know, you find out that quite often things that are purely intellectual also hit your emotions. So I try to avoid this. Um, but as you will see, it's very exciting. Um, it goes counter to some of the uh, accepted wisdom but that will make it all the more interesting for the discussion afterwards. Martin, you have the floor. Thank you very much. We'll speak from here. Um, thanks very much to uh, Paul. The, um, like probably many people here, I've learned a lot from Paul. I've disagreed with some of what I've learned, but I've learned nonetheless. Um, Thanks for mentioning free lunch. Uh, 
you clearly didn't hit the paywall, which says something about your subscription. It is free for anyone who pays the price. <laughs> so uh, that particular bit of con- conventional wisdom <laughs> stays unchanged. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, it's true, as Paul said, that uh, issues both in economics and politics can often become emotional issues. That, that's as it should be, even if we should strive to keep uh, a dispassionate discussion. Uh, that should be dispassionate, not in the sense of without passion, but with uh, controlled passion. Um, I certainly feel quite emotional about... Um, the European story, the European project, and the euro. And I suppose the fact that so many of you are here means that some of you do too. I think it means that we all care one way or another about the uh, trouble that Europe is in. Because Europe is in trouble. Uh, It's been working itself It's been working a way out of trouble for the past six, seven years. Uh, But I'd like to start by putting those problems in perspective. And to do so, I'd like to take you back in history to to a dark moment in uh, in Europe's history, perhaps the darkest. I'm thinking about the spring of 1941. Uh, So at that time, uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union were still allies. The U.S. stood on the sidelines of Europe's war and things looked very, very dark. And right at that moment, on a small island off the Italian coast, an island called Ventotene, uh, where there was a prison where Mussolini held anti-fascist prisoners, a number of these prisoners were preparing a manifesto for Europe's future after the war. So one of them was Altiero Spinelli, who later became very prominent European politician, a commissioner, member of the European Parliament, and uh, a leader of the movement for a federal Europe. And in this manifesto, which was written at probably the time when there was the greatest cause for pessimism and skepticism about European unity, um, it was written on cigarette paper and smuggled out to the resistant movements of Europe, Spinelli wrote that after the war, the main political division wouldn't be between left and right, but between those who wanted to restore the national sovereign order and those who wanted to aspire to a federated Europe. So he wrote, the question which must first be resolved, without which any other progress is mere appearance, is that of the definitive abolition of Europe's division into national sovereign states. So this is the spring of 1941. Now, move forward, and although Spinelli didn't mention national currencies specifically in the Ventotene Manifesto, I think it's quite clear that the euro is the most ambitious attempt at moving towards that vision. It's one of the very few, perhaps unique, at least in its scale, um, concessions of national sovereignty, of monetary national sovereignty that the world has seen, uh, certainly peaceful, voluntary concession. And that is why 
what happens with the euro uh, is so important, not just for the eurozone economy and for the economies that trade with it, but for the European idea altogether. And I think there are two main reactions to the sort of trouble that we've seen in the eurozone, the sovereign debt crisis in particular, the almost unraveling of the single currency and the general uh, stagnant economy, and in some countries much worse than stagnant, huge economic collapses. Um, One is the easily understandable Eurosceptic reaction, which is to say uh, that it was insanity to try to go so far towards federalism to begin with, to break down national barriers. And this is what you should have expected. Now, there's another, and in my view, more interesting interpretation, which says, all right, we ran into problems with monetary integration and that form of unification, but that just means we didn't do enough unification. The euro didn't integrate Europe enough to work well. Uh, So this is what you hear from most of the friends of European integration and of the euro, and they, in a sense, try to rescue Spinelli, I think, by outdoing him. The solution, in their view, to the problems that integration has wrought is more integration. Now, what I'd like to draw attention to is how both of those views are actually, they have one premise in common. And the premise is this, that the euro as constituted, as it was originally designed and largely still uh, looks, was deeply flawed. The sort of less generous descriptions are things like a straitjacket, a burning house where someone has thrown away the key, a disaster waiting to happen. This is a common view even among the Euro's friends. Uh, the thought that comes to mind is with friends like these who needs enemies. Um, It's a view that's depressing if true and dangerous if false uh, because what I want to show tonight is how much it actually drives the policy response to the crisis, uh, even though I will try to argue that it's actually a misconceived idea. The problems that have befallen the Eurozone economy are problems of voluntary policy choices, mistaken policy choices, not anything that was forced by the structure of the euro itself. So the story I want to challenge is one that comes in three tenses, if you like, past, present, and future. There's an analysis of how the euro made a crisis more likely, created the crisis, if you like. That's the past. There's a story about how the euro made it much more difficult to handle the crisis and predetermined a much worse outcome. That's the present, and we're still, we're still somewhat in that. And there's a story about the future which says, if we're ever going to go out, get out of these troubles and not risk a repeat, we need to repair, complete, perfect the monetary union and uh, integrate much more deeply. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time on each of those three tenses of the conventional story and encourage you to question it, think it through, 
a second time or a third time or a first time if you haven't thought critically about it yet and suggest that things are not quite what they are said to be. Let's start with the past. There's a story about how the euro is to blame for the eurozone crisis, the sovereign debt crisis, and the general economic failure. Uh, And it goes somewhat along these lines. Uh, Mistakenly, many European countries and economies join together to have a single monetary policy, a single central bank, the same interest rate for all. That drove up wages, created booms in the peripheral countries. It created relative stagnation in core countries. And because interest rates should have been higher in the periphery and lower in the core, this reinforced, in a self-perpetuating way, these imbalances. This policy-induced boom in the periphery and stagnation in the core drove up relative wages in the periphery, eroded these countries' export competitiveness so that they fell into deep external imbalances, current account deficits, trade deficits, and current account deficits. Uh, And because of the euro, they could not devalue their currencies to keep their export competitiveness and counteract that. And these deficits, of course, were then financed by huge capital flows from the core to the periphery, and that, that led to a buildup of debt. And when the crisis hit, the deficits could no longer be financed, and the debts became unpayable. Some aspects of that story are true. Uh, in particular, the last bit, that the crisis was essentially about a sudden reversal of deficit financing uh, and the emergence of probably unpayable debt overhangs. But there are also some things that are not true. So I want to just present you with some things that the standard story can't really account for very well. One is that if you look at most of these peripheral countries, Greece, Portugal, Spain there isn't really any sign of exports doing badly. Their export shares held up. If you simply look at a chart of, let's say, the Spanish export share as a share of world exports um, and compare it with the German share, they move in very similar ways. If you look at wage increases, they did happen, but they didn't happen in the tradable and exporting sectors. They happened in the non-tradable sectors and the public sector. So what happened wasn't so much that exports fell. It wasn't at all that exports fell, really. But imports rose. So I I would say that the conventional story has things precisely the wrong wrong way around. It wasn't that a loss of exports caused deficits and therefore indebtedness. It was that capital flows encouraged indebtedness, financed import booms, and that is what led to the big deficits and the debt overhangs. But that is not the same as saying that the competitiveness, the export competitiveness of these countries was eroded by the euro. Um, What about the debt accumulation? Can it still be blamed on the euro? I'd like to remember what the last decade looked like. The euro had the very sad misfortune of being born 
into uh, the decade of the greatest financial excess the world has ever seen. This was a decade, I remind you, where investors and banks would throw loans at American house buyers with no income, at Icelandic banks with no business pedigree and hardly any business plans. Uh, And it seems to me that we don't need to look to the euro to think that euro or not, these investors would not have any problems throwing money at an incontinent Greek government or irresponsibly run Irish banks. Um, Very likely that would have happened in any case. And without the euro, you might even have had the reinforcing effect of exchange rates going up, leading to more imports because they would look even cheaper, and more financial inflows because the exchange rate appreciation gives you a chance of a quick return. We don't know. But I submit that given what was happening everywhere else in the world economy at the time, inside countries and across borders, our best guess is that something similar would have happened among the Eurozone state, even if they had not been in the Euro. And the main message here is that this crisis had a very recognizable shape because this sort of excessive financial inflows that finance an import boom in the receiving country is something that's been with us for as long as there's been international finance, and for that matter, within countries, for as long as there's been domestic finance. Debt bubbles uh, are a fact of very depressing regularity. There was no need for monetary unification to make them happen. And to think that if only there hadn't been the euro, we wouldn't have had these debt bubbles is an unjustified exercise in psychological displacement. The way these crises typically end is also very well known. One day, sentiment changes. Losses start to emerge. The bubbles burst, and the financing stops. And you get a balance of payments crisis, for those who are economists, or more picturesquely, a sudden stop. A sudden stop in foreign finance. That's happened many, many times over. It happened in Europe, and it would very likely have happened in Europe, regardless of monetary unification. Now, let's move to the present. Once a sudden stop happens, what do you do? A sudden stop brings with it two thorny challenges. You've been borrowing to import, and suddenly you find it much harder to borrow. The first problem is that stop itself. New funds are no longer coming into the economy, but worse than that, old funds try to rush for the exit. So it's not just that you're not getting any new funding. Everyone's trying to pull the existing funding out as well. It's an unfortunate characteristic of debt that it's a promise to repay. Um, The second problem has to do with the stock of outstanding debt that's there, which might have looked tolerable when things were going well, but once the crisis hits, suddenly look unpayable. 
Why is a debt overhang damaging? Why is this a problem? It's important to be clear about this. And it's important to be clear that it's about external debt generally, not necessarily public debt, not necessarily private debt, either brings this problem. And the problem is twofold. One is sort of mechanical. The more debt you have, the more you have to extract from your economy to service it. And if that is more than you thought, or a greater share of your economy than you thought, that burden is heavier. Uh, The other part has to do with expectations. If a debt suddenly looks unpayable, people are going to wonder how, when, and to what extent it will be paid, or put differently, who is going to take the loss that earlier looked hypothetical or implausible and then now looks like it has to happen. So debt overhangs bring uncertainty until they're done away with. That uncertainty is hugely damaging to economic activity because it makes makes it very hard to know where it's safe to invest and to whom it's safe to lend. And it's no surprise if it leads people to stop investing and stop lending. There's a way of telling the Eurozone story which brings it really down to this point. The essence of political leadership in this sort of debt crisis is to decide, as soon as it's clear that debts won't be paid back as originally foreseen, who is going to take the loss or the delay. That is something that requires ultimately political resolution because the nature of a debt contract is really its inflexibility. Equity is different. If you're an equity investor, you get whatever's left when things are good. You can't just pull your money out. But Europe is addicted to debt. The European financial system has a much higher share of debt, and in particular bank debt, than, for example, the U.S. So it was particularly important for European countries to try to make the political determination where the chips fall, so you can then move on with certainty. But there was a political failure to do so. And I would say that if one should find one single-sentence reason for why things have been so slow to improve in the Eurozone, that's it. Now, what should you do when when you're faced with a big debt overhang? whether it's your government that's over-indebted and can't get new financing, or it's your banks that are over-indebted and will not extend credit to the economy. Um, Well, there are two ways to think about this. You can either attack the stock of outstanding debt, the debts that are already owed, and bring them down through a restructuring of the debt. A debt write-down, call it a default, call it a restructuring, call it a reprofiling, but a change in the terms on which debt will be paid back. The alternative is to look not at the stock, but at the flow. The borrowing, new borrowing going forward. So rather than trying to reduce the stock directly, you can try to squeeze the flow of new borrowing and thereby bring debt under control. And if that's what you're trying to do, you probably want to switch borrowing into lending, make a negative flow a positive flow, depending on whether you're talking about borrowing or lending, um, change the sign. 
but the, observation I just, uh, the observations I just made should suggest to you why trying to squeeze the flow without dealing with the stock is likely to be hugely economically damaging. And that is because as long as the debt overhang is still there, the uncertainty is still there. And the pressure on the economy to service it is still there. The alternative is to forcibly write down debt or to delay put moratoriums on debt depending on how big the problem is, but reduce the stock or deal with the stock and then let the flow take its time to adjust because that, it's the new flow that finances new economic activity. Europe chose to squeeze the flow rather than to reduce the stock. That is, in my, sen- in my view, the big, big economic and political decision that was made in 2010, which was to forswear the possibility of a debt restructuring of sovereign debt in the case of Greece in May 2010, uh, and in the case of bank debt in Ireland in October 2010. Things gradually change, which I will get to, but that was the original choice. Why was that? Uh, Europe could have decided, European policymakers could have said, Greece has a problem. Maybe they need help, but before we give any help, let's drastically write down this debt and only give aid to finance ongoing deficits and to bring the economy around. You may or may not know this, but if you look at the 300 and something billion euros that the Eurozone has lent to Greece, 340, 50, I think, on last count, the share that's gone to covering the Greek budget has been about 10%. The rest has been used to pay back outstanding debt rather than restructuring it, to bail out banks so they could pay back their outstanding debt. Um, Very little has actually gone to spending. So that's an illustration, I think, of trying to uh, not touch the stock while squeezing the flow. Why did the Eurozone make this choice? At the time, most people, with some exceptions, didn't even want to countenance the idea of rewriting, of writing down debt. Um, But if you look at the historical experience, debt restructuring usually has good effects. The two large episodes of sovereign debt restructuring, Europe in the 1930s and especially Latin America and other emerging countries in the 80s and 90s, tend to show that after a definitive write-down, one that really solves the problem, It doesn't take very long for capital flows to return, for credit ratings to improve, and for growth to pick up again. That's uh, what what empirical researchers have found, and it's not hard to understand why that should be so. If you're an investor, would you rather lend to somebody who pretends that he will service all the debt let's say the 120, 150% of GDP of debt that he owes, or would you rather stay out and see how it goes? Alternatively, if somebody has restructured their debt so they now owe 20%, 50% of GDP, and those liabilities have been definitively 
set aside. Looking forward, that's a much better credit opportunity. Investors look forward, and that's why we shouldn't be surprised to see the evidence that restructurings tend to work. And I'll remind you that two years after, in 2012, there was a restructuring of Greek debt, and not so long after that, investors did come back to lend money to the Greek government. Why didn't Europe do this? Many reasons. One is that people were terrified after the Lehman Brothers collapse. It was hard, in my experience, to meet anyone, any European policymaker back in 2010, who didn't immediately bring up Lehman in any discussion of restructuring, even of the smallest banks. But there was also, I think, less honorable reasons. One is that, as far as bank debt goes, there's a very close political and personal connection between banking and business elites in many European countries. Banking is often seen, formally or not, as more or less a branch of policy. Um, those relationships would be very violently disrupted by forcing losses on bank investors. And there was, I think, finally, a, a moral objection to the idea that especially European countries, but also their banks, should not service their debts in full. Whatever the reason, this sanctification of debt had some very important consequences, and I would argue prepared the ground for other policy mistakes that were then made. First, not wanting to deal with the stock of debt and focusing only on the flow of borrowing, had the direct effect of sustaining this damage that debt overhangs cause and of uh, keeping a broken banking system alive uh, for much longer than it should have been. Those had direct economic effects. But I think it also forced, or at least contributed to, a second very important mistake in economic policymaking, which was a fiscal, and I would say a monetary policy tightening, where the right response should have been, for the Eurozone as a whole, fiscal and monetary loosening. This happened partly mechanically, you have to service more debt, you also have to put a bigger squeeze on your budgets. That leads to fiscal tightening in the countries that are affected. Monetary policy is harder to make work if the banking system is broken. But there was also a more indirect mechanism, which is this. If you're not going to restructure your debt, the alternative is to bail debtors and thereby their creditors out. If you're going to bail people out, you have to give them money or lend them money. You have to refinance their existing debt. And if you're going to lend anyone money, you're going to demand something in return. And given whose money was most importantly demanded once the decision not to restructure had been taken, that means in particular German taxpayer money, it was really inevitable not to have to comply with the demands that German policymakers would make. And they were, to a large extent, excessively tight, both on the fiscal side 
and to some extent on the monetary side. So as a result of thinking that you need to bail out debtors and therefore their creditors, the rest of the Eurozone rather willingly accepted a particular economic policy view that involved fiscal austerity, not just in the countries that really had no alternative, but for the Eurozone as a whole. And that also put pretty big political constraints on what the European Central Bank could do to stimulate the economy through loser money. So the excessively tight fiscal and monetary policies in the Eurozone were, in a sense, the quo for the quid in this quid pro quo of bailout money in return for policy control. And finally, there is the political damage of that quid pro quo itself. Because what you have seen throughout the Eurozone is that core economy taxpayers have been dragged, often kicking and screaming, into what they see as subsidizing, or at least lending to countries often displayed as uh, profligate, irresponsible spenders. Whereas the recipients of those bailout funds have had to take orders from Brussels, from the Troika, sometimes more or less directly from Berlin, which grates even when the advice is good and is doubly damaging if the advice or the demanded policies are bad, and it's been a mixed bag. And all of this has been done and advocated based on a premise that there is no alternative. There is no alternative to these policies, to these sorts of transfers, because without this, the euro can't keep together. And that brings me to looking towards the future. This narrative of there is no alternative to uh, an exchange of money from the creditor countries for policy control over debtor countries. Uh, This view has basically been shared by both the center-right and the center-left virtually the entire establishment policy and political political elite. But note that both sides of that quid pro quo violate the promises that were made to the citizens of Europe when they adopted the euro. German voters were promised they would never have to bail out other countries. And the other countries were promised a sort of monetary parity with Germany, not having to slavishly follow what, at that time, the Bundesbank was doing. But in both, on both sides of this equation, people have been told to accept precisely what they were promised they would not have to accept. And not only that, that they have to accept it because there's no alternative. This sort of thinking, I think, still governs most of the political and policy thinking in Europe. Things have got better 
Some of the mistakes have been partially corrected. We did get a sovereign restructuring, too little, too late, in Greece in 2012. And there is occasionally talk of this being a possible thing to do in the future. There is a part of the ESM, European Stability Mechanism Treaty, that provides for this option, even if it's for now politically dead. There has been bank restructuring. It happened in Cyprus, where the European Central Bank had moved from pressuring with all its might Ireland to bail out its banks in 2010 to pressuring with all its might Cyprus to let its banks be restructured and bank bondholders have to take part of the pain. Now, the the pressure is uh, problematic, but at least it's better when it's used for the right policy. And, of course, the European banking regulations have now been updated to include a provision for letting banks restructure their debt before any bailout. So this is progress. On the monetary and fiscal policy, too, there's been progress. The squeeze on budgets has eased. It's described as slippage, as failure to follow programs, Uh, And all of that is true, but it's also good policy. It's just that the way the uh, conventional policy view has developed, it has to be presented as a failure. Monetary policy has improved dramatically. Uh, And that started from pretty much the day Mario Draghi took the helm at the ECB. So the European Central Bank will now intervene in markets and expand monetary policy that way. It will intervene to stop self-fulfilling speculation that the Eurozone will fall apart. All of that is good, but there's still a very strong sense that for the Eurozone to work, you need to complete the monetary unification, the single currency with further unification in the fiscal domain, common budgets or budget transfers, and further centralized shared political control over those transfers. Uh, And that I think of as a perpetuation of this politics of reciprocal blackmail where economic policy is forced into a single dimension of choice, which is how much money should the creditor countries give up or transfer or be willing to transfer to debtor countries in return for what amount of control over those countries' policies? That prism, I think, still governs uh, policy thinking in the Eurozone. Uh, And to give you one example of that um, is the very common discussion of the need for fiscal union in Europe. I'd like to dwell a little bit on that, and for the non-economists in the, in the audience, let me explain briefly what is meant. The idea here is that in a currency union, if you cannot adjust your exchange rate to shift demand towards your own domestic economy when things get bad, 
You need some other sort of adjustment, stabilizing mechanism, and that has to take the form of fiscal transfers. So there is a pretty commonly held view that says, do you know why nobody ever questions the integrity of the U.S. dollar as a single currency for the United States? Well, it's because they have a fiscal union. So any instability is dealt with through transfers over the federal budget um, so that badly hit states benefit and states that have a good economic time pay for it. The argument here is essentially one of insurance. It's not one of redistribution from rich to poor. It's one of insurance where those whose economic fortunes are good compensate and help those who are hitting a rough patch. And it's a perfectly sensible point. Insurance is a very good idea. Uh, But once you think about it, it's not necessarily a good idea only for countries that share a currency. You can make the same argument that insurance is good between countries that don't, because they will also go through unsynchronized cycles. And it's not clear that you need everyone within a monetary union to take part in this. It could be a subset of countries. But the more important point is uh, that it's a misconception to think that a U.S.-style fiscal insurance mechanism would make the difference between the Eurozone as we've seen it and a supposedly optimal, well-functioning Eurozone. And the reason is that Once you start measuring this, the degree of fiscal insurance between, for example, U.S. states, we can make the same argument between, for example, federal states within Germany, is not all that high. So the degree to which the federal budget compensates for fluctuations in uh, state-level GDP in the U.S., is about 15%. In other words, the fiscal insurance mechanism, the U.S. fiscal union makes a particularly bad shock to the economy of, say, Texas, about 15% smaller than it would otherwise be. Now, if you look at Greece and think about how it's lost 25% of its GDP, 15% insurance would mean that it would have lost 21% of GDP. You know, it's worth having, uh, but it's not the sort of thing that would rescue the Eurozone if you thought that the Eurozone needed rescuing. Um, So I'd like to suggest that I have nothing against fiscal union and fiscal insurance, but I'd like to suggest that uh, it leads us down the wrong track to say that this is a sine qua non of the survival of the Euro. I spent a little bit of time on this point about fiscal union, because if you think it's needed, you are bound to think also that more centralized political control is needed, more sharing of sovereignty over economic policy. Because it's unthinkable that you could have this sort of pooling of budgets, of taxpayer money, without certainly those who think that they stand to contribute rather than receive, feeling that they have sufficient control with how the money is spent, and that it's well spent. It's impossible to justify this sort of scheme to voters without that kind of tighter, deeper, more extensive centralized control 
of a policy. Um, but I think what European politics, electoral politics and political debate uh, has shown over the last few years is that at the moment, at least, that's not a place European citizens really want to go. And they certainly don't want to go there because it is the necessary consequence of a remorseless logic, to borrow the words of Chancellor George Osborne, that it's this or catastrophe. I think that every time they are told that, they are quite rightly thinking, well, in that case, we were fooled, if that is true. And every time they think that, um, they are more likely, I think, to support the fringes of the left and right, who are in many ways unpalatable, but are still almost the only ones saying that if there's no alternative within the euro, then we'd rather be without the euro, and perhaps in some cases without the European Union altogether. So what's really at stake in the question I'm asking in the book, namely other alternatives to the, this deeper integration, uh, what's at stake is whether monetary union is ultimately compatible with democracy. And that's a much bigger problem, I think, for people who are supportive of European integration than for those who reject it from the outset. Um, let me return to where I started. This um, claim by Altiero Spinelli that Europe's future and its harmony really hinges on whether you can break down national barriers. So I've tried to illustrate two observations about that claim. One is that most supporters of European integration try to support Spinelli's view by outdoing him, by saying that we need more integration because the amount of integration we did was harmful, and to fix it we need even more. But the more important observation uh, or argument I've tried to propose is that that's not actually true. Um, if I'm right, if that argument is correct, and there are alternatives to much deeper fiscal and political integration in the Eurozone, that will still leave the Euro functioning perfectly well, so long as you choose sensible economic policies, fiscal and monetary policies, which many of which are still determined at the national level. If that is true, then I think we should deem it exceedingly dangerous to push forward with an agenda of deeper integration on the basis that there is no alternative. And it's dangerous because I think it will erode the support among the public, uh, without which that sort of project can't ultimately succeed. Even if it is necessary, that's a dangerous path. Um, but if it's not necessary, then it's downright reckless. And I say that as someone who thinks it's desirable to have more integration, fiscal and political. I'm all for fiscal union. 
But I think it can only work, and we should only pursue it, as something that those nations um, that want it voluntarily choose. Uh, so there's a, a bit of a paradox um, I'm trying to arrive at, which is that the best case for further European integration, and I think the most, uh, the truest way to heed Spinelli's calls, uh, is to say that, first of all, the current troubles are not the results of too much or incorrect integration. We can stay where we are if that's where we want to be. And depending on which country you're from, the we will be a different one. So we can decide. And maybe some of us, some countries, will want to integrate more deeply. In that case, those countries can take the lead on that. I would like the political debate to move much more towards an exploration of coalitions of the willing, to use a term that was uh, abused in a different context, uh, where those who want to integrate further will. And if it's desirable, that will be demonstrated. But the track we've gone down now, which is to say there is no alternative, and mistakenly saying that there is no alternative, I think... Uh, will lead to continued problems uh, and at worst an erosion certainly of support for European unity but possibly also for democracy. Uh, and I'd like to end on an observation about what that role of integration and democracy has played in both Europe's self-understanding and self-image and its image and status in the rest of the world. Uh, a long time ago, Europe's place in the world was secured by its economic predominance, but that's, those days are long gone. Europe is still a large economy. It's a quarter of the world economy, but that share is going to shrink for good reasons, which is that countries that were once poor are getting richer. So Europe's greatest source of political power is the soft kind. It's the extent to which it's seen as a a pole of attraction, a pole of cultural attraction, intellectual attraction, political attraction, perhaps even economic attraction. And it sounds strange to say those words, given everything that's happened in the last couple of years. Um, but sometimes I think it takes an outsider to remind us who we are and what we have. And here I mean we as Europeans. Some of you may have... Uh, read or listened to Pope Francis's lecture to the European Parliament last year. Uh, the Pope told the parliamentarians and the European citizenry at large through them um, that Europe has come to seem like an elderly and haggard grandmother, feeling less and less a protagonist in a world which frequently regards it with aloofness, mistrust, and even at times suspicion. And he went on to say that after the economic crisis, there has been growing mistrust on the part of citizens towards institutions considered to be aloof, 
engaged in laying down rules perceived as insensitive to individual peoples, if not downright harmful. The great ideas which once inspired Europe seem to have lost their attraction, only to be replaced by the bureaucratic technicalities of its institutions. Uh, That, I think, sounds familiar to most Europeans. The message was that the grand European vision has ceased to appeal to Europeans, but also to the rest of the world. But the implication is that it once did. And the implicit hope is that it can do so again. What are those ideas, those European ideas? We could talk about the Enlightenment, but Enlightenment ideas of rational, tolerant discourse and inquiry are really the birthright of all humanity today. Uh, But there are two quite European ideas I just want to mention. One is the social market economy, one that combines in a way that no other part of the world or no other historical period has managed um, a system of market capitalism with a public responsibility of security for all. That's a very deep European idea that deserves respect both in Europe and beyond. And the other, of course, is precisely this commitment to creating peace and prosperity through a voluntary sharing of sovereignty. Those two are very deeply European ideas, and they're ideas that at one point did inspire the rest of the world, emerging countries. They probably don't much today. Um, And the reason that this is related to the euro is that the despondency over what happened with the eurozone, the disappointment, disenchantment with the monetary, that last stage in the move towards European unity, um, has sapped Europe's own faith in these ideals. And it's not just the faith, it's also the practice. So much of the ultimate policy consequences of these mistakes I've tried to elaborate on uh, are both making it harder to sustain that idea of the social market economy uh, and are creating greater and greater animosity towards the idea of pooling sovereignty in the pursuit of peace and prosperity. There is a sense in which this sanctification of debt that I think predetermined many of the other mistakes and the economic failure of the Eurozone has turned all European countries into debt slaves in a literal sense for some of the peripheral most indebted countries, but intellectually also the core countries. I think even Germany is acting against its own most enlightened interest because it's in the grip of this logic of putting debt relationships above (laughs) other considerations. Uh, So Europe needs to regain confidence in its own achievements And the first step towards regaining confidence, I think, is to uh, avoid and undo this intellectual mistake of of thinking that the euro itself doesn't work rather than the economic policy decisions to which there were alternatives that were taken. To see things uh, for what they are. 
So I think that would enable us to transcend some of the infertility of the current politics. I think it could heal the politics of the euro. And uh, it is, as I said, a paradox. But I think that the willingness to integrate further is precisely going to be restored when you give national polities a restored room for maneuver. And I think that's where the hope lies for both the Euros, for the Euro's political purpose, which was Spinelli's vision, to be fulfilled. So I think that the promise of the Euro was, and remains, that with one market and one money, Europe will move closer and can move closer to speaking with one voice. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thank you very much. Thank you, Martin, for this uh, exciting talk where you um, start with the issues concerning the euro and the future of the euro and, and, and then draw a broader picture about uh, um, what all that means for the future of Europe. If I may summarize uh, your, your main point, then I would do it as follows. Um, you say the, the crisis that we have seen in the eurozone has little to do with... Uh, design failures of, of the euro um, they have all to do with bad macroeconomic policies, uh, reluctance of governments to accept debt restructuring, debt write-downs, which push them into excessive austerity, and this created uh, all the problems that we have seen. Um, therefore, there is no need to try to um, change much institutionally in uh, the, 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 the euro, in the eurozone, and therefore also no need for further integration. It's not necessary. Fiscal, political union is not necessary because there is nothing basically wrong with the eurozone institutionally. What has been wrong is bad macroeconomic policies. And therefore, we can go on. So in that sense, it's a positive, it's an optimistic message about the future. Um, of course, it's also very much dependent on um, your hope that macroeconomic policies in the future will work better than in the past. So you have to rely somehow on the wisdom of policymakers to save the euro, but it's not necessary to fiddle around, try to redesign the system. It's okay, right? And we can do it without further um, integration. So in that sense, it's, it's optimistic compared to the, what has become the conventional wisdom, which is the eurozone is flawed, um, it's, it has institutional <coughs> problems, it's fragile, and therefore we have to, it's like an unfinished house and if it's unfinished, it's very uncomfortable, and when there are shocks, at some point we will have to finish the construction. You say there is no need to finish the construction. The house is fine. 
right? Uh, but those who live in there are just lousy policymakers. Um, <laughs> so these are the two views, right? I've been um, making propaganda for the view that the system, there are flaws in the system, and therefore we will have to move forward in terms of integration. And that leads to, a, in, a, in a way, to a more pessimistic view about the future, because we have to accept that nobody wants further political and fiscal union, right? So those who say, let's go forward, have to accept that there is probably no way we can do it. And therefore, the whole thing is doomed. That's the implication. So you say it's not doomed. You say it's not doomed, but we need wisdom of policymakers, which makes it problematic also. But this being said... (laughs) This being said, I, I really liked your, your book, your talk, and now the floor is open uh, to, to you to ask questions, and please um, um, present yourself. Yeah, I see so many. Let's start there, yeah. Here, and then we'll go. Yeah, yeah. You spent quite a lot of time talking about what we ought to do about it. But you didn't actually talk an awful lot about why we got there in the first place. And I want to go back to your heart, because you actually described this as yet another death. And this is a question I actually asked Michael Sarris, the ex-Sarris minister. Um, where do these debt bubbles come from? Why do we have persistent debt bubbles? And this takes me back to the fact that I begin to realize that I'm a closet hiatus. I become one in my old age. And I might also ask you, as a good European, to contemplate on the fact that the word in German for debt is the same thing as the word for guilt. And I wonder what the later, if not the early, Shall we collect two or three, and then you will answer? Sure. Um, uh, there, gentlemen, yeah. Thank you. Um, Dr. Keith Postler, um, an external examiner in finance. Um, your presentation uh, centered on and focused on um, the euro as um, something dependent just on the eurozone, but um, financial markets have far more power than any national states, um, and uh, the financial markets can destroy a currency if they want to. Um, so, uh, what do you think about the future of the euro in that respect? Mm. Thank you. Okay. Um. Yeah, maybe we remain on this side, and then I'll go to that side. Uh, yes, the, the person in blue shirt. Um, you spoke about a um, coalition of the willing for um, further in, uh, monetary integration. Um, to what extent is that possible? Is such a multi, is, to what extent is such a multi-speed Europe possible within the current institutional framework? Okay, will you take up these sure. questions? Let me just 
Drop down the last one so I remember it. Yeah, they're not exactly narrow questions, are they? Um, why do we have debt? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not a religious person, but over the course of the crisis, I've gained enormous respect um, for the fact that all the ancient religious texts have very strict regulations on debt. They have rules against interest, and they have um, requirements for regular debt forgiveness, jubilees, and they often have a bias towards what we would today call equity financing. That is to say, the investor keeps a stake, skin in the game, in the project being invested in. Um, well, I think the ancients were onto something. Clearly, debt and its possible damaging effects have been with us for a very long time. And I think we keep rediscovering this, that if we have too much of it, it doesn't go too well. Uh, why do we have it? Well, it's because, you know, here's a, the sort of simple answer. Because we forget ourselves, right? We uh, get too optimistic. Everyone gets too optimistic. And while the going is good, these debts look largely sustainable and payable. There's no problem. You know, on the fringes, there's always stuff that looks irresponsible, but because most of it is fine, we let it pass. Uh, and it's only when the outlook changes that it turns out, actually, this isn't all repayable. Um, and, of course, that has further consequences because people see, well, I'm not going to be paid back, so I won't be able to pay back, and everyone retrenches. That's the standard cycle. Um, why we keep falling into that, I think, is probably something to do with you know, a deep psychological features of, a feature of, of how we are. But why do we let it happen? It's not as if we can't stop it if we have the will and the wisdom to stop it. Uh, and here I want to bring it back more closely to the Eurozone discussion. It's often said that the Euro removed the ability, the national government's ability to control financial flows. I think this also goes to the second gentleman's question. Um, I don't think that's, that's true at all. Um, it's true that you can't control the central bank interest rate at the national level within the euro. But uh, there's a long way between the national bank, the central bank interest rate to what actual borrows in the economy are offered. And um, everyone now is very excited about so-called macroprudential regulation, which is basically a nice word for saying that uh, policymakers can put limits on how much individuals can borrow and how much banks can lend. Quantity limits, often. Well, those... Abilities, those tools were always there if anyone had wanted to use them before the crisis. You know, if the Greek government had wanted to borrow less, nobody would have stopped them. If the Irish bank regulator had wanted to stop Irish banks from borrowing so much and lending so much, it could have stopped them. It's simply not true that the euro made that impossible. It was a, it was a failure of responsibility. Granted, it's hard because you don't realize how bad things are. We're probably better at it now. But I think that goes to reinforcing the point. Unfortunately, some of the reforms that have happened in the Eurozone, I think based on the idea I described as misguided, have removed some of that national room for maneuver, which is a bad thing. Uh, on the German word for, for debt, uh, schuld. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? it? It's the same word as guilt, and that probably does color some of the politics. But not all that much, I don't think, because if anyone 
was prepared to countenance a sovereign default in, Euro, in the Eurozone in May 2010, it would have been the German government. I think they were the ones who got the closest to saying, should we let this happen? They were also afraid, and they faced immense pressure from France, from the ECB, headed by a Frenchman, from the IMF, headed by a Frenchman. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love France, it's not that. Uh, but I think there is a particularly anti-restructuring, a particularly strong anti-restructuring view in that uh, political environment. So uh, I think it's, uh, I'm sure it colors the politics, but I actually think uh, in the grand scheme of things, Germany at the outset should be blamed not for being too harsh, but for not being harsh enough. Um, on financial flows, well, as I, as I just said, I think probably governments have greater powers over financial markets than they realize. The reason why there are global financial flows is because we removed capital controls from the 70s on. The reason why many of those flows were unregulated is because governments chose not to regulate them. Um, but countries can reverse course. They can impose rules on borrowing and lending. They can um, impose, in particular, that more finance takes the form of equity investment rather than debt. It's not that finance is a bad thing. It's a great thing. And I couldn't get into this in the talk, but people talk about rebalancing the Eurozone. I think the imbalances in the Eurozone, which means money flowing from rich countries to poorer countries, was a great thing. That's what you want. You just want the money to be spent on the right investments. You're probably more likely to get that if you have more equity investments. Um, so, so I think I disagree that they are uncontrollable. It's more that we've chosen not to. Um, to what extent could there be coalitions of the willing? Uh, your question was partly about what the institutional framework allows. I think it depends more on political will. I think if if a significant number of, a significant grouping of countries decided to go ahead with something, uh, it would be hard to stop. Uh, I think France has a particularly important role in that regard. During the crisis, I think France punched well below, below its, its weight politically uh, out of a choice to align itself very closely with German policy priorities. Um, I think it could have got more than it thought it could if it had decided to push for another course. And you see a little bit of that in the last few years, and especially in the summer with the Greek crisis, where there was a greater willingness to oppose uh, Germany. So France could certainly assemble a coalition of the willing if it wanted to pioneer, let's say, a jointly issued a euro bond. Go ahead, try it. Would Germany take it to court? I doubt it. Maybe there would be trials from court, court challenges from citizens. It's worth giving it a try. Um, there are other options on structural policies, economic policies. If people want to harmonize their labor markets, want to put in place joint employment insurance, I think if the political will is there, you can go ahead and try. Um, I think that's the binding constraint, not the institutional environment. Maybe we move to that side, yeah? On top there, yeah. 
Good evening. Thank you for sharing your short uh, thoughts. My name is Stuart McIver. I'm the owner of Get Best Brand. And my question to you is a simple one. Given that the uh, euro is uh, essentially a democracy, for the Europeans in the room, what would your advice be to us individually to make your dream come true? Let's have a few more questions. In the middle... Hi, my name is Achilles. I work for a bank as an economist. My question is, uh, for a political union, how would you see the uh, p politics moving from the national level to the European level? Like, what new institution or new maybe Euro area parliament would be needed for that? Thank you. I welcome your optimism on Europe, and I also wish that Europe should survive and survive well. But the reality of the matter is that Europe was popular because it was an economic uh, success. And that sense of solidarity uh, was uh, developed stronger. But when the crisis came, when the chips were down, Europe was a cop-out. Now, this was something a shock to the common man. And um, so the, if your dream is to come true, I think you have to uh, make sure the, the, uh, the European economy um, uh, pr proceeds further and, fa and also at a faster rate. So question, my question is, do you think economic, the economic development in, in Europe, economic growth in Europe, uh, does, it give you, does it give you any sense of optimism? Thank you. Let's take this. Yeah, I, I'm going to do them in reverse order. Um, <laughs> Well, yes, I think there is case for optimism. Um, and and the, the main argument for optimism is, as, as Paul put it, the project is not doomed. There's nothing that, there's nothing that has predetermined the Eurozone economy or the European economy generally to stagnation until it achieves some big, big reforms. Uh, all it needs is to all it needs to do is to stop making mistakes. I, I I accept that might be a tall order, but it's not quite as tall an order as uh, recreating the whole structure of the euro. And some of it, as I uh, as I hinted at, is already happening. Um, there was a time this year when Europe, the eurozone, was growing faster than the U.S. Um, that's gone back to norm again, <laughs> but. Um, but things are improving in the Eurozone. And if you think with me that there's nothing, there's nothing preordained in Europe's subpar um, performance, then you have to think that the upside potential is pretty huge. You know, as a simple logical consequence of the fact that it's been so mismanaged to date, it could hardly get worse. It could have been worse. It could have split up. Uh, and there would have been a huge self-inflicted uh, wound. But it didn't, and things are slowly moving in the right direction. So, yeah, the causes for optimism are twofold. The potential is great, and actual policymaking has very slowly moved uh, towards a better course. And you, you sort of see the inkling of the 
political establishment, rather than being eviscerated by the fringes that are the sort of uh, assaulting fringes, um, are actually trying to moderate uh, the policies. So that's the case for optimism. But I, I completely accept your premise that in the end you need economic success to look successful in any other way. Um, but I take you to be saying that if Europe recovers its project and its way of doing things will again gain some of that luster it has lost. I think that would be a good thing. Now, that could happen either because economic policies become better or, as the second question uh, suggested, that there is, in fact, this move towards stronger political union. Um, what form would it take? Well, the form that's being envisaged uh, is, is one that sort of puts policy content first and, and structure second, as it were. It's, it seems like people are thinking about what are the sort of policies we need, fiscal union, transfers, structural reforms, and so on, and what is the sort of cent centralized institution formation that would give us that. Uh, that's, of course, a profoundly undemocratic way to think about things. Um, but the better versions of those say... Uh, and this is particularly true, I think, of the German pro-Europeans, including Wolfgang Schäuble. To have that and make it legitimate, you also need democratic electoral representative structures at the European level. So that would be a Eurozone parliament, more power in the European legislature, and so on. Uh, I, I find it very hard to think that this will actually come about. This is why I think it's so important to realize that it isn't actually necessary. <laughs> I think it's more likely to come about as the end point of a process where individual countries indiv you know, in smaller groups experiment with more collaboration in narrower areas. So, so in one sense, I guess, um, I don't quite accept the premise of the question. Uh, I don't think political, further political union is necessary. And I think any process that leads to it that's based on the idea that it is necessary isn't going to lead to the most desirable forms. Um, some of those remarks, I think, address the first question, what, what do we have to do to make the dream come true? But you asked about individually um, what can the Europeans in the room do to help it come true. Um, well, I think the best I can come up with is... Uh, to think hard about this argument that's made to you all the time, that monetary union was a flawed project and that it's been a source of disunity rather than unity, I'd like you to consider my claim that it was never a mistake, it was never a flawed project. It's not to blame for the Eurozone's economic woes. And it doesn't need to be rescued. Uh, I think that already would change some of the mentality around what challenges, political challenges, Europe faces. It's not a problem to be fixed. Um, so, uh, of course, another way of saying what I just said is go read the book. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to say that that's the single greatest thing people can do for European unity, but, uh, <laughs> but I, think, I, think, I think ideas matter. Ideas matter a lot, and they do structure how policymakers think about what they're doing. So uh, to the extent that every person in the room has different ideas about what is possible and what's required, 
good thing about democracies is that they, they in the end, respond to those sorts of thoughts. Further questions? Yeah, yeah. Hello. Yeah. Hi, uh, postgrad student here at the LSE. Um, I would agree with you that something sort of flawed with the conventional wisdom about how the crisis came about. But my my, my question is, uh, why do you think Ireland is sort of handling the crisis a bit better than the southern periphery? So, so what was the last bit of the sentence? I didn't why Ireland is handling the crisis a bit better than the southern periphery, e.g. Greece, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hi, my question is about um, uh, you mentioned uh, that there should be a, a Greek uh, write down in 2010. Um, the talk in Europe then was about contagion, and uh, and I felt that the, kind of the accepted truth uh, back then was that. Uh, that would cause other countries to default and that they would have to leave the euro if they defaulted or if you had a, a debt write-down. So what are your thoughts on, is, is, was that the truth or was that kind of a mistaken assumption? Okay. Last question there. Um, do you think that the Europe, Eurozone is an optimal currency area? And do you think that Greek, particularly Greek unemployment, would be no worse if they had never joined the Eurozone? So that joining the Eurozone didn't harm Greek employment? Great. Yeah, I was, uh, I was hoping there would be an optimal currency area <laughs> theory question. This is the LSE. Um, let me do the other two questions first. Why is Ireland handling the crisis better um, than some of the other countries? Well, it's been, uh, it's been seven, eight years in the making. You know, all, all bad things come to an end. Uh, it is important that Ireland was facing an economic crisis earlier than some of the other countries. Uh, it was hit by the global financial crisis faster and, and worse and was already in a reform program and a crisis policy program before the 2010 sovereign debt crisis. Um, so that means, one, they've had more time. Two, the structure of their economy is such that it stands to benefit better from the global recovery. Third, I think it mattered that quite a lot of the Irish policy program was in fact homemade before the Troika came in. So there was, there was a clear sort of disenfranchisement with, uh, with the way they were bullied into bailing out their banks. They had done it themselves first, but then they were stopped from changing their mind for the better. Um, but much of the other, the rest of the policy program had already been prepared as a crisis package before. So compared to a place like Greece, which, all, which always had bigger problems to begin with, um, I think there was more of a domestic policy-making process, a healthy, more of a healthy domestic policy-making process that was kept intact. I think that 
that matters. So there was less civil unrest, you know, fewer strikes, all of these things that make things harder. Um, and finally, you know, let's keep it in proportion, handling the crisis well. There's strong growth now, but, you know, debt to GDP reached, Paul probably has the exact numbers better than I do, 120% of GDP, jet, debt to GNP, which is what the debt actually has to be paid out of, is higher. Um, so we're talking about thousands and thousands of euros per Irish man, woman, and child um, in excess of what might have been necessary, and a recovery that maybe could have come several years earlier. So, you know, good, good for Ireland. It's great that it's, it's working. Has the whole experience been one of success? I, I wouldn't say so. Um, the Greek 2010 write down, you're quite right, a lot of the worries were about contagion. Um, but you said something very important, which was that the fear was that other countries would not be able to service their debt and would have to leave the euro. That was a very common perception that defaulting on your debt would mean having to leave the euro. I think that's one of the most damaging non sequiturs uh, in economic policymaking uh, for a very long time. It's simply not true that there's some automaticity from even an uncontrolled default, but certainly a controlled managed restructuring, to having to leave the euro, as Greece in 2012 proved. It didn't have to leave the euro then. Uh, the way a country could be pushed out of the euro would be if the ECB decided to stop financing its banks, its banking system. This almost happened this year with Greece. Even that, you know, you can for some time live with capital controls. Cyprus is still in the euro. Um, you can restructure your banks too so that they be so they become perfectly capitalized. People will take losses, but there would no longer be any cause for the ECB not to finance the new banks. A big part of the problem in the crisis was that the ECB quite explicitly said, we don't want you to restructure your banks, and we're going to punish you by withholding liquidity if you do. That's what happened in Ireland. Uh, so that biggest danger in contagion, I think, doesn't follow at all. Default would only lead to Eurozone exit if the Eurozone decided to make it so. Um, could there have been contagion? Of course there could have been contagion. Um, would that have been worse than what actually happened? Contagion happened in any case, as we know. The uh, Greek bailout did not stop the Irish crisis. The Irish bailout did not stop the Portuguese one, and so on. I think probably some countries could have toughed it out the way Italy did. Of course, if you'd had better monetary policy from the start, this may never have come up. The uh, Federal Reserve and the Bank of England started buying bonds universally in 2009, March 2009. If the ECB had done the same, you might never have had a sovereign debt crisis. You might not even have had to make the politically difficult choice of buying some countries' bonds, which looks like subsidizing profligate countries and so on. Um, but even where you were in May 2010, I think if you look at the evidence, even if there had been contagion, even if you'd had to restructure more countries' debts, I think we should be less afraid of that than, than we are. If a lot of banks had had to be restructured and you'd done it well so that you would come out with new, better capitalized banks after a short bank holiday, we would probably be in a much better place because 
growth could have restarted much sooner. So, one, I think the contagion fears were overdone. They were made worse by policy choices. And two, even if contagion had happened, there would have been ways to manage it um, that could have led to outcomes better than certainly what we saw uh, eventually. And then, of course, the, the, the big one, and I'm leaving this with one minute to our official closing time, optimal currency area theory. People should f- feel free to leave. Um, but for, for those, <laughs> just very briefly, for those who haven't studied this. They can also take my course, of course. Of course. They should take, they should take Paul's course. Um, optimal currency theory is uh, it's a theory that dates back to the 1960s. Uh, and it was sort of invented by Robert Mundell, who, it's interesting to observe, has been a strong supporter of the euro and I think indeed of a world currency in uh, some of his moments. Um, The idea is that your exchange rate is a stabilization tool in turbulent times, and you should only give it up if the benefit of of stable external prices and whatever other stabilization tools you have outweigh the loss of that tool. Now, the more I think about OCA theory, the less helpful I find it as a way to think about the Eurozone crisis. Um, And the reason is that I'm very skeptical of how, on the whole, how useful um, a separate exchange rate is, even as a stabilization tool. Let me tell you why. So this gets a little bit techy, but... First of all, what sort of problem is it meant to address? If you have short-term shocks that you know are temporary, you don't want your exchange rate to vary too much in response to that. You don't want to encourage a restructuring of the economy only to restructure back two years later. You know, if the oil price fluctuates, you don't want to get out of the North Sea and then back into it. It's the same idea. Um, similarly, if you have a permanent shock, an exchange rate adjustment is not going to make you permanently richer or better off. So the, the sort of narrow application of exchange rate, uh, using the exchange rate for stabilization policy, is in the transition to adjusting to a permanent shock. So how good is it? Well, the, the, the theory is that if you face a negative shock, you know, a product market, an export market disappears or something else, then... Uh, devaluing is going to shift demand into your own country and that will get you back to full employment faster. Well, that that assumes quite a lot of things, right? Uh, One is that a depreciation actually has the desired effects. In the very short run, we know it can have perverse effects. In the longer run, look at it empirically, it doesn't always work. You can look at the UK depreciation in 2008, didn't really do anything to the, to the external balance. And there are reasons for this, right? Once you make your model a little bit more realistic, you have to think about how do labor markets, not just how does the price, the exchange rate, adjust to shocks, can it move or not, but how do labor markets and capital markets respond to the change in the price? If you, have a, if you don't have a very competitive uh, market... It's not clear that exporters will respond by expanding. They might just pocket the greater profits. The same could happen on the import side. Um, And in practice, it often doesn't happen, right? So it didn't happen in Britain. 
where it took a very long time, and there's still a large current account deficit. Greece had an internal devaluation, and it didn't really work for very, very long. Um, it just had the perverse effect of reducing spending power domestically. Uh, Spain didn't have much of an internal devaluation, obviously no external devaluation vis-a-vis the euro, but it still managed to increase exports very significantly. So I think what really matters is how flexible your actual product market, uh, factor markets are, labor and, and, and capital, physical capital. How quickly can that respond? And if that's flexible, it's not clear to me how much you gain from the exchange rate flexibility in the first place. So I accept that it sometimes is beneficial. I'm skeptical about how and how often uh, it is beneficial. So you asked in a sort of sly uh, turning the tables, I think, you asked um, would Greece outside the euro have lower unemployment today and does that mean the euro hasn't, um, <coughs> hasn't done any harm to um, Greek unemployment? Well, one doesn't follow from the, the other, right? So you, unemployment could be lower now depending on a lot of other things. Uh, that doesn't mean the euro itself caused the harm. I think with the best policies, Greek unemployment would have been much lower within and outside of the euro. Okay, that's a good ending. Um, I was very uh, interested uh, to learn today that the, the euro house is structurally okay. It's, it's, a, it's a nice building. Uh, unfortunately, the people living in the house misbehave. Yeah. Get, get new tenants. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to read your book. Thank you. And, um, there will be a session now immediately outside uh, where you can buy the book and it will then be signed by the author. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>